Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Ulf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Michael Kong, CEO of Phantom Foundation. While studying IT and finance at the University of Sydney, Michael researched smart contract security and eventually started a cryptocurrency fund with others from traditional finance called Token Capital Management, which assisted Phantom in raising funds in 2018. Michael's involvement in Phantom continued to evolve until he eventually became CEO of Phantom Foundation in 2020. Michael, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Thanks, guys. Yeah, great to be here. And thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, it's awesome to have you on. Yeah, great to have you on. We're excited about this conversation. So before we jump in, one thing for our audience, especially those watching it on YouTube, you may notice Ulf and I usually are sitting side by side together. Ulf has COVID, so we're separated. Uh, he's going to tough it out, be make it through this call, so it should be good. Uh, but Michael, where I want to start with this conversation, it's always fun to to talk to our guests a little bit about that first moment. And doing my research, I couldn't discover when exactly it was you first discovered crypto. When was that and what was your initial impression? Um, so when I first discovered crypto, I think it was around 2012 because I've been listening to um, this uh, libertarian uh, um, uh, commentator you guys are probably familiar with. It's a bit notorious in the crypto community called Peter Schiff yeah. um, because like, when I was in high school, um, I kind of became like a libertarian, which is how I was like, drawn into cryptocurrencies and other things um, because basically I just like, wanted to bet against the government, right? Because yeah. I could, I could see like you know how bad they were doing a whole bunch of stuff, and so Peter Schiff had um, back then people on his um, on, on on his radio show. He's, he does a podcast now, but he had a radio show back on there um, on Sirius XM, and he had people on like Olaf Olaf Kalsenwi and Eric Warhouse, and you know these well-known people even back in 2012. And he was telling people, oh, you know, don't buy Bitcoin and stuff. You know, it's it's overvalued at ten dollars. It's true value is at, at like you know I think zero. He's still telling people that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the same, the same stuff, right? Except you know the price is just multiplied like five thousand times. But anyway, like like he he doesn't seem to be deterred by that. <clears throat> so I kind of like thought about Bitcoin. I was like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't like you know dabble into Bitcoin. But then in twenty thirteen, I talked to a few more other people um, that were kind of interested in Bitcoin, and so that's when I really got involved and I and I bought some Bitcoin back then. But then, you know, I didn't really do anything more further than that because I just wasn't like really that interested in working in like kind of like the payment space area. And I kind of saw Bitcoin as like just kind of like a store of value and being used for payments. And honestly, that didn't really like interest me that much in terms of like uh, like ha- like having a career in it or, or having a job in it. Um, but then in 2015, um, a couple of friends of mine at university were talking to me about Ethereum and they were saying, oh, it's not just like Bitcoin, you know, it's... um." 
this this technology with smart contracts where you can code um, like anything you want is it's totally programmable, and so you can build all sorts of different applications on it. It's all like decentralized peer to peer. Um, it just runs on another chain called Ethereum, and so that's when I started to get really really interested in and sort of the applications that you could build. So I started like experimenting with Solidity, you know, um, like writing smart contracts, just doing like building like random stuff, just kind of like playing around with it. And uh, and then fortunately in 2016 when I was doing like like a final year like major software project, um, there, there, there's a professor um, at, at University of Sydney programming languages group that actually we're working with quite a lot of Phantom now um, called Bernard Schultz, who was very much interested in doing like a whole bunch of like analysis of smart contract, like finding smart contract securities, like automatic like detection of like patterns, certain patterns within smart contracts, um, based at the virtual machine level. So I was part of like his research group and uh, push out like a bunch of research there. And I did my honors thesis on uh, like, kind of like gas related exploits. So that's kind of like my background, how I got started. So fortunately, I managed to actually get quite a lot of um, technical knowledge at um, at university. Um, and I, and I well, was a bit surprised by that because I, I, I thought, you know, the university wasn't interested in blockchain research at all. But even back in 2016, at least a couple of people were. Yeah, actually, that was going to be a question that I was going to ask is, you know, you're, you're there, you're studying IT and finance in university, but then you're doing all of this research on the side as well. And so I was going to ask if that was keeping pace with your own research that you were doing on the side, but it sounds like it kind of meshed together. Yeah, that's right. It kind of did because, you know, what I was doing kind of on the side was just um, experimenting with smart contracts, just like coding at like a high level, uh, writing in Solidity, experimenting, you know, using a file et cetera. Um, the, kind of the research I did at the university was more um, on the like on the lower level stuff. So more specifically to do with like virtual machine instructions and analyzing how, you know, smart contracts really technically execute. So I was kind of combining my knowledge of like, you know, how to program smart contract at, at a developer level, but also understanding under the hood how exactly it works and, 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 and building tools to kind of make sure that your smart contracts are, are secure. And you've been with the Phantom Foundation for four years now. Can you tell us a little bit about how you initially got involved and what eventually led to you becoming CEO in 2020? Yeah, so it's a bit of a long story. Um, when I, as, as, as you mentioned, the whole in, thing. In, yeah, yeah, we got so, time. Uh, it's, a, it's a long podcast. <laughs> yeah, so as you mentioned in um, 2017, I um, so back in 2017, from about January to September, I was working at... Um, I was the first employee for this uh, blockchain development firm, which is now quite big in Sydney, Australia, called Blockaid. And um, during that time, um, I was also like thinking about like starting about a, uh, starting up a cryptocurrency hedge fund because I was very much interested in you know <laughs> running a fund, you know do, doing that sort of like financial analysis and also like combining like my knowledge of like crypto and IT together in that. Um, but you know, in order to run a fund, you need a financial services license, right? And so you know. Me being like kind of like a noob, you know, obviously not have a financial services license. So what what I had to do was um try and find people in, in traditional finance or people more experienced in finance that actually had an um this financial services license so we could actually run a fund. So I, you know, went over to uh talk to a whole bunch of different people and you know, got a couple of offers. Um, but most of the people, you know, like just kind of like ignored, ignored me. Um, but then uh, eventually, I, I met these uh, two people in traditional finance that came from a big bank in Australia called ANZ Bank. So they were running 
one, like one of the big divisions. It's called like the global markets division. It's just like kind of like a trading division. And they were like, uh, you know, I had to kind of like talk to them about cryptos. I didn't, wasn't really sure if they were that interested or not. So I had a couple of meetings with them. But then I started getting like emails and messages at like 2 a.m. And they were, you know, uh, you know, asking me all sorts of questions about crypto. So clearly I could tell that they were interested. So eventually, like kind of towards the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, uh, launched um, uh, like uh, well, like one of Australia's first like, cryptocurrency hedge funds with them. Um, and also someone on the team had a contact um, with a few people in Korea. And one of those people wanted to launch apparently his own like blockchain, right? And he wanted to have it like um, what's called like asynchronous. So basically like better, faster, cheaper than Ethereum because he wanted to run like uh, these like applications, these like food technology related applications on top of the chain, or at least that's what we were told. So that project obviously was Phantom and it ended up getting a lot of hype in early to mid 2018. So the project ended up raising a bit over $40 million. It was like one of the most like hyped up ICOs at the time, these initial coin offerings. <laughs> I think we all remember back in 2017, oh, yeah. 2018. So like Phantom really came in the tail end of that kind of like, ICO bull market or craze. Um, so that's kind of how it got started. Um, but then um, what we were told about the technology was not actually true. And, 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 the, and unfortunately, the people that we you know, were, were advising the project on helping them raise the money and doing the legals and, and, and the technicals regarding like the token sale were not exactly telling us the truth. So essentially in 2018 and early 2019, we had to like replace the whole team we have a new set of developers, a new set of people. And Andre like really played a big role in that because he, you know, I was thinking about, you know, whether we should just like pack up shop. He was like, no, 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 let's, let's take what we have right now and see if we can like, you know, develop like actually like develop a real technology uh, from the ground up. And so he helped with that early technology development and, and building a team um, alongside with me. So in like early 2019, that's sort of like when I became like, uh, like the guy running the show. And so we had to basically build everything from scratch. So in 2019, we were very quiet. A lot of people thought we were dead. We we're just working on building uh, kind of like a new consensus, the one that was like originally promised by the other people back in 2018. And in 2019, the team managed to do that. So just December 27, 2019 was when they launched, um, was when we launched the um, the first mainnet. And a lot of people, I remember comments were kind of surprised because they thought the phantom was dead. They didn't really hear much from it. So, you know, we got a little bit of attention then, but then we were like largely ignored because, you know, a lot of time had passed since we actually done the ICO. Um, so, a lot, you know, a lot of people thought that we were just dead. But then in 2020, we just continued working on it and we ended up getting a bit of traction. And then this 2021 is when it really took off. Um, you know, it first began with um, uh, a couple of um, um, DEXs on the platform called Spooky Swap and Spirit Swap, run by two like really great teams. And they were, you know, like forking Uniswap and SushiSwap and creating their own like variations of it on top of Phantom. And their te te technology and user experience is actually like really, really good. I would say it's even better than what they were forking, a lot better. And so a lot of people took notice of that and was like, and were like, wow, so you can actually do this stuff on Phantom and it's, you know, faster and cheaper because it's, you know, of the underlying technology that we call like asynchronous BFT. Um, and then, you know, network it's network effects, right? So that kind of attracted more users, which attracted more developers who built more applications, mainly DeFi related at the beginning, which attracted more users, et cetera. So then, you know, there's now like a huge DeFi e ecosystem of like hundreds of applications. And there's also like 
um, you know, NFT-based applications as well, and metaverse is now being deployed on Phantom. So a lot of the ecosystem growth is just happening organically. Like, like it seems like every day that you know people ask me, you know, I just got I just got asked actually an hour before the call. <laughs> oh, I, I saw this like um, game is like being deployed on Phantom. You're like, do you know much about it? I'm like, actually, I I, I don't really. <laughs> because it's just people like organic you know a lot of people think that you know foundation of myself are like omniscient and we know absolutely everything that's going on <laughs> the truth is that we don't and that's actually a good thing because it shows you just like how big the community has kind of grown and how much like traction we're getting now so yeah i'm really happy with the progress that we've made basically from like nothing to where we actually have something like i, I think quite substantial now yeah that's a crazy story i did not know all that that's that's wild that uh basically what was pitched was was all just a lie and then you guys still from behind the scenes came in and turned it all around and you basically if i understand right you started from scratch is when you had to do that is that right yeah so in 2018 you know the original um founder of fountain he was telling us and same with his like developers on board right and these were all koreans that um you know oh we built this like new abft it's a lot faster than you know what currently exists there. <laughs> we have this simulation code. They kept saying we have simulation, we have simulation. Otherwise, like we have like a you know like a private test net working. So, and I was like, oh wow, that's like that sounds pretty good then, right? And so I remember like you know asking them some technical questions, and um you know I never really got like a clear response, and that probably was like the first red flag. I was like, mm, what's going on here? So I kind of asked more questions, and they were getting like a bit agitated about it, and they're like, well. You know, just wait until like we show you the code and how it actually works and you'll really be impressed. And I kind of like, like, and I learned a, a big lesson from this. I kind of like look into the background and the, and the due diligence and the due diligence in the background and the backgrounds were very strong. You know, we're talking about like two associate professors. We're talking about like postdoctoral students from Yonsei University. And Yonsei University is like a very like strong technical university in Korea. So they definitely like had a real background. And so I was like, well, maybe these guys are just a lot smarter than me um, because, you know, I, I don't have like really have a very strong background in distributed computing. It's more on uh, virtual machine or, or like so-called like middleware smart contract execution. Although I do like have some knowledge of distributed like ledger technology, but I thought that, you know, these guys probably like have a lot more than me because after all, you know, professors and postdocs and I'm just like a guy who just got his bachelor's degree. Right. So I kind of was like, kind of like put that to the side. And then it turns out that, everything they were t t uh, telling me was like uh, basically like a lie you know they had they had produced this technical paper that was just plagiarized where they did, they did the classic oh we'll just switch uh, the variable the variables around you know we'll just change a to x you know b to y etc you know th this is like comical stuff that everyone at university always makes fun of, fun of people like this <laughs> it's like you know the people who plagiarize and all they do is like change the variable names and think that they you know they'll get away with it because they apparently have new code when it's exactly the same and that's exactly what these people did. Mm. And, you know, they produced this, you know, plagiarized technical paper. They even tried to patent it without even telling us. <clears throat> so they submitted wow. a patent based on plagiarized technology. You know, th 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 there's such a long story here that I don't want to take up the whole time talking about it, <laughs> but a lot of it was like really dumb and stupid, like, like stuff like that. <clears throat> like not only just like plagiarizing the underlying technology, which itself is really, really bad, but then trying to patent it afterwards is just like a whole nother level of like, <laughs> I don't know, uh -huh. stupidity and, and uh, insanity. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it took a while because of like, I don't know, politics and the way like people work to like eventually get rid of them. But we eventually did. And then basically had to start from scratch. Um, 
So we started from, you know, we thought we had something and then it turned out we had nothing. <laughs> and then we had to start from scratch to kind of like get to where we are now. So it's been a long, right. hard road. And I kind of feel like we wasted a year. So some people will ask us, oh, you know, how come some of your competitors are like a bit further than like Phantom when you guys have been, you know, doing well, apparently. I said, well, <laughs> I think part of it is that we didn't have a very good start, whereas like other projects did. Um, and so what would have been ideal for us is that if we actually, if everything that, that we were being told was the truth and we had kept the momentum going from when we done the ICO, I think Phantom would be in a much stronger position than it is right now. But, you know, I you know, can't go back in the past and change things. So I can only focus on the future. I think, you know, with Phantom's growth, it's just a matter of time before we get bigger and bigger and bigger. It sure seems like Phantom's in a great spot. Um, you know, even if there's critics, I mean, from what I can see, there's still a lot of uh, new revitalized hype around Phantom. As you mentioned, there's um, a growing ecosystem of real projects. So uh, it definitely doesn't look like some project that everybody's forgotten about. If anything, it looks like things are picking up, at least from my side of things. Yeah, I, yeah, they're definitely picking up now. So you know, what, what we're trying to do in the future now is just trying to carry the momentum. So, it's, you know, keep focusing on building the underlying, you know, um, you know, DLT technology, also focusing a lot on uh, optimizing the, the middleware, so optimizing how smart contracts are executed. And then it's just a matter of, um, you know, the foundation trying to encourage as many people as possible to, you know, build on Phantom. So we have like a lot of inbound leads, a lot of people who want to build natively on Phantom, who want to bring their projects to Phantom. And we're just trying to help them as much as possible, like, you know, via technical assistance, via marketing, and also via, you know, the, the Phantom incentive program that we announced a few months ago, which is this, you know, 370 million um, FTM at the time, you know, that's going to be used to help grow the ecosystem as well. So we're just really focused on ecosystem growth and just improving the technology. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like marketing gimmicks or, you know, or, you know, one, one trick ponies or anything like that. Just, I think if you just build the solid technology and you market your technology, I think that's what, uh, you know, kind of like wins in the end. There's a lot of things there, Michael, that you uh, mentioned that I want to dive into a bit deeper. But let's let's start really high level. Um, one of the goals of our our channel and our podcast is to to help create unintimidating content for those who are brand new to the crypto yeah. space and that kind of thing. And and my understanding is that you know when you think of Phantom, key features seem to be the speed and the low fees. And so for somebody who's kind of new to this space, uh, who know, has like a kind of a base level understanding, how is it that you're able to achieve these one to two second transactions for a fraction of a cent? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, without getting into all the technical details, what it comes down to is a way that transactions are like processed and confirmed by the fandom network. So it's very different from say like how Bitcoin and Ethereum do it. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum have basically like synchronous networks. So the transactions have to wait to be included into a block. Whereas like Phantom is asynchronous. So transactions get confirmed as soon as they enter into the network. I mean, I like to use the analogy of like, you know, transportation, like you can have like a, a train that you have to wait for versus a train on demand. So say for example, um, you know, you have a train that comes every 10 minutes, right? 10 minutes, right? So like the Bitcoin blockchain. So when, when you, if, if, if you consider yourself to be a transaction and you line up in a queue, you line up with other transactions around you and you have to wait 10 minutes before you're able to be included into that train, right? But the train only has like a certain number of passengers. So you might not even be included in it, but if you're lucky, you're included in it, right? And then 
five other trains have to come after you to really make sure that your transaction is part of the network, right? Whereas for Phantom, it's really like, as soon as you like go to the train station, you and all of your other passengers around you, you automatically have a train that comes to you and you can um, go into that train. In other words, when you submit a transaction to the network, um, that transaction plus the other transactions that are submitted around the same time, they all get um, added into a, a block. And that block gets passed around to two thirds plus one of the um, total validators in the network and they get confirmed by the validators. And as soon as you reach that like confirmation threshold, then you're included part of the network. So um, we, we call this like deterministic finality as opposed to probabilistic finality. Um, so with Bitcoin, uh, because um, as soon as you're confirmed by the network, it, it's not guaranteed that you actually are part of the network in the end because another part of the network may have like more transactions in it um, after you. <clears throat> the, the way you make sure that your transaction really is part of the network is that you have a, you have a certain number of blocks that come after you, right? So you've got to really wait for those other blocks to, conf- to have your transaction confirmed. So in Bitcoin's case, the average transaction, the average block time is like 10 minutes, <laughs> but because you've got to wait for five other blocks afterwards, in, in reality, it's more like an hour. Whereas mm-hmm. for Phantom, because um, the network is asynchronous, because the transactions automatically get passed around the network as soon as they are submitted to the network, you know, uh, confirmation times are usually around two seconds. And you only need like one block confirmation in order to make sure, in order to know that your transaction really has been confirmed by the network. And so that's the key difference. The key difference is, is between asynchronous programming versus synchronous programming. And asynchronous programming is always faster than synchronous programming because with asynchronous technologies, you don't have to wait for other things to happen first. Um, so, that being said, yeah. Yeah, well, I was just going to spin off that and say, with that being said, you know, inevitably with most things, there's a pro and there's a con. So are yeah. there, are, what are the drawbacks to some going this route? <laughs> So some of the drawbacks is that, you know, it has to be like proof of stake based, right? So you, you kind of have the drawbacks of um, proof of stake um, uh, compared, you kind of have the disadvantages of proof of stake. And one of the disadvantages is that like some nodes um, can hold a lot more stake than other nodes. So you have like a degree of centralization in that case. However, you can make the same argument say about proof of work, right? In that, you know, not everybody can just spin up a Bitcoin miner these days it's quite difficult. So only like some specialist providers can actually set up large number of farms um, in order to confirm transactions on the Bitcoin network because their economy is a scale at play. So, um, you know, you could say that, you know, the, the fact that like, stakes can be concentrated in proof of stake is a disadvantage, but there's also, I guess, computational, um, uh, computational, um, what do you call it, centralization also in like a proof of work system. Mm. Um but, but apart from that, like the real big disadvantage has to be with how do you get the um how do you get the final ordering of transactions across all nodes um considering your network is asynchronous. So that that is the most difficult part of having an asynchronous network because in the end, one of the key properties of all distributed ledgers is that every single ledger across every single computer is a hundred percent in sync. That there there can be no like inconsistencies, even the slightest inconsistency. Otherwise, the ledger is not. Um, is not accurate, right? And nobody will know actually what the true information is or who really owns what on the network and what transactions are legitimate as opposed to others. So what what we've spent majority of our time doing is figuring out how do you actually get the final order of transactions in the end, um, given that it's asynchronous? Well, 
there's a lot of steps in order to get that done. And we've also had to optimize it as well because obviously you don't want these like steps to take a very long time. Otherwise, it, it kind of defeats the purpose of, of having an asynchronous network. So we've already spent a lot of time kind of optimize choosing the best algorithms and kind of combining the technology together to make sure that um, it's it works as best as possible. Um, and a lot of these like algorithms are not like new algorithms that we've like invented. These are kind of like algorithms that kind of have existed or ideas that have existed actually for decades, as is the case with like most blockchain technology. So for example, <clears throat> you know, we use a concept called like level timestamps to kind of get the ordering of transactions. And level timestamps is this concept that was ex- I think created like by somebody in Microsoft, I believe like 40 years ago or something like that. Hmm. Um, so hmm. I won't get into any more detail than that, but like we had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get that ordering of transactions um, to kind of like minimize that disadvantage because most synchronous blockchains, it's very easy to get the ordering of transactions because it's just like, oh, you know, what comes first, right? Because when a transaction comes, you know, one at a time, whereas when asynchronous network transactions come like all of the time. So that, that's, that's really been the disadvantage, but I think we've managed to like overcome it. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter. Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description. And back to the episode. Awesome. Well, we've dug in a lot already, Michael. But before we dig in too much further into the technology, I'm wondering if we can take a step back and if you can break down at a high level, you know, why uh, for those of us who maybe aren't as technically inclined, you know, what makes Phantom different? I mean, we we just talked about transaction speed and the the asynchronous part of the technology. So, uh, you know, we get that. But is that the main difference or is there something else in sort of the elevator pitch for Phantom? Yeah, well, Phantom as a whole, you know, the ecosystem is is basically one of these like layer one technologies, right? So by layer one, we mean like like, like platform that can execute smart contracts, but uh, is like an alternative to Ethereum. So there've been a number of like different platforms um, that have tried to build like alternatives to Ethereum. And one of them is like, Phantom as well. And so like what it consists of, it's its own like uh, distributed ledger, right? Or its own like blockchain essentially. And um, th- that blockchain is based on kind of that asynchronous technology that I, I explained before. But Phantom is a lot more than just that like asynchronous technology. <laughs> it consists of also like the middle the middleware stack as well. So how smart contracts are executed. Um, right now we're, you know, we're fully integrated with the Ethereum virtual machine. Just because the Ethereum virtual machine is like most ubiquitous kind of uh, smart contract execution machine that's available. Um, although we're doing like a lot of research and development to kind of like modify it and, and replace it ultimately. Um, but on top of that is also like the application layer. So like all your, your usual tooling that developers use in order to run smart contracts. So, you know, I like to say that the way that you wrap about and deploy smart contracts on Ethereum is almost exactly the same as on Phantom. So the key difference with the Phantom ecosystem is like the consensus. So it's a consensus that what what makes it like like faster and cheaper than Ethereum. 
it's a consensus that's completely different from Ethereum. But everything on top of the consensus is very similar to what we have on Ethereum. Because Ethereum does like have a lot of like great tooling and you know, it has a Solidity programming language and a lot of developers are familiar with the way like Solidity works and the Ethereum environment works. So we kind of like, in terms of like how we're going to execute smart contracts, we kind of made like a commercial decision um, quite early on that uh, for the time being that we'll use the EVM and allow people to um, write smart contracts in Solidity simply because a lot of people are familiar with Solidity. So if we wanted to get a lot of traction fast and a lot of people building on Phantom as fast as possible, we wanted to be Solidity compatible uh, or, Ethereum, or Ethereum, um, EVM compatible. Because if we wanted to create our own virtual machine, you know, first of all, that would take time. And also like people would have to learn like an entirely new way of like programming smart contracts to deploy on Phantom. And that would create a lot of friction in terms of adoption. So that's the reason why we kind of took the EVM approach. And so, you know, the Phantom ecosystem consists of, you know, the, the underlying blockchain technology, uh, the middleware, which is the EVM, and on top of that, all the applications. And it's the applications that are developed by a whole bunch of community members. So we've seen applications across like DeFi, NFTs, metaverses, et cetera. So it's really like the community that's been driving the adoption of the applications and, you know, creating amazing user interfaces. And all of this like technology and development is all based upon like user experience because users care about getting their transactions confirmed the fastest and also the cheapest. So that, that's what really is what is important to the Phantom Foundation, which, you know, is, is tasked with assisting the growth of the Phantom ecosystem. What the, what's the sense you're getting there from just kind of the people who are coming into crypto and that kind of thing? Because so Ethereum had this this... I guess, first mover advantage, the bulk of, you know, whether it's NFTs, DeFi, that's happening on Ethereum, but it's not cheap to do transactions like DeFi, you know, like swapping tokens, everything like, you know, Alf and I were chatting about this a few days ago, but like, it could be an US dollar equivalent, like thousands of dollars to do one thing <laughs> when you add in all the steps to do it. And depending how high gas fees are, do you think that that is enough of a driver that is pulling people now and two other layer one solutions or or what's your just kind of thought on the general uh, state that we're in right now? Yeah, I think that is the number one reason. Um, you know, the, the kind of the, the um, um, high gas fees on Ethereum, it kind of, it's kind of like good news and bad news in a way. <laughs> the good news is, is that it shows you like how much people <coughs> want to use blockchain technologies and how much demand there is for it. Um, but also it's a negative in that it just shows you how like not very scalable like Ethereum is at the moment, um, <laughs> simply because it's synchronous. So it only print, uh, you know, processes transactions like one at a time rather than like many at the same time. So with, you know, Ethereum's gas prices, it's, you know, it's all about supply and demand, right? So like the demand is like how many people want to submit transactions to network at a given point in time. And then the supply is that, you know, what is the network capacity to handle, you know, a number of transactions. And because Ethereum is not very scalable at the moment, um, but a lot of people want to use it. Gas prices have to adjust a lot higher. Just like you know, if there's not as much supply of something in the supermarket, but a lot of people want it. Prices go higher. It's exactly the same concept with gas prices. So that's why gas prices are a lot higher than they have been in the past. So you know, that's been a big draw card for uh, people wanting to develop on the Phantom and other chains as well. Because you know, for the equivalent transaction on Ethereum, you you know you're probably paying like a few cents on Phantom, whereas on Ethereum, it can easily cost you like $100. So, you know, Ethereum right now is only really being used by people who have a lot a lot of money. 
you can kind of like withstand the fees, have economies of scale, and can you know can like yield farm and DeFi and do all sorts of transactions on Ethereum. Whereas like you know the average person can't really afford to pay you know fifty dollar fees, hundred dollar fees. Sometimes they even go up to like a few hundred dollars, even for you know uh, executing smart contracts that are uh, you know not, not very sophisticated. Um, so I think that's been the biggest reason why people have been drawn to like alternative layer ones. Um, the second reason as well is also confirmation time. So for Ethereum, you know, transactions get confirmed on average, you know, you know, per block. And this is only if you include in the first block. So it can even be a lot longer than this. You know, it usually takes around 15 seconds to generate a block, but then you've got to wait for several block confirmations afterwards to really make sure your transaction is confirmed. So you're waiting kind of like more than a minute. Well, that's not really like a great user experience. Whereas in Phantom, you know, your transaction can get confirmed usually in around two seconds by the network. So you only have to wait, um, you know, just a couple of seconds before your transaction is confirmed. And you know, it's hundred percent confirmed with one block confirmation, and then you can go and do more stuff. So, you know, as I said before, like users care about two things, really. They care about, you know, how much does my transaction cost and how fast can I get it confirmed? And so that's what we've really optimized for because that's all to do with user experience. And that's why I don't really talk about, you know, transactions per second, like TPS, which is one of these like numbers that a lot of people like to use in terms of like supposedly analyzing like uh, uh, the performance of blockchains. In my opinion, that's not really that important because the users don't really care about transactions per second. Um, the users care about time to finality, which is how fast can the mm. uh, transaction be confirmed and the transaction fees, because that's that's what that's what users like really will be experiencing in the end. They're not going to be really be experiencing the TPS. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, you know, being a user, it's, I've never, I've never experienced any transaction on any blockchain. That's like one to two seconds through to finality. And, and so that, that's, uh, definitely, I don't know, it's, it's different and it's intriguing. Um, <clears throat> I have a question around the ecosystem and the the dApps that are being built on Phantom, and I like I noticed, for example, uh, Sushi Swap was on there. Now I'm not the most technical person, so uh, excuse me. But um, for like Sushi Swap, as far as I know, originally um, it was a clone of Uniswap, and it's on the Ethereum blockchain. So how does um, a project like that go from Ethereum? to phantom and then further to that you know when we talk about the you know their token how does that bridge from ethereum to phantom or am i just like saying this all wrong and i don't really know what i'm talking about no no that's something like a very good question so um the way that um um the way that people kind of move between chains so like what we have right now which in my opinion is also going to continue into the future is that we don't just have like one chain that people use although the like the biggest chain of course by far is, is still ethereum um but we have like multiple like layer ones and phantom is one of them so you know being able to switch between multiple chains it's it pretty straightforward because for example like metamask you know you just kind of like put in the chain id and like you know information about the chain and you just add it um as like another chain on MetaMask. And so you can easily just like, you know, select the dropdown and switch between Phantom and Ethereum and other chains, right? Um, so the way that people kind of like move assets between chain is, chains is, is via what's known as like bridges, right? And bridges are basically these like custodians and it can be like centralized or decentralized. Um, 
where these custodians kind of like hold assets um, uh, on, on both chains. So for example, you might have like USDC on Ethereum and say you want to bridge a thousand USDC from Ethereum onto Fandom. You might want to, you might interact with like a bridge, say like, like any swap or multi-chain. And then you basically like interact with the smart contract where you deposit um, a thousand Ethereum USDC um, into the smart contract. And so that small contract is like a, is, is like a custody. So it holds that thousand USDC and then on, and then it's like custodial wallet on Phantom will issue you um, one, 1000 USDC on Phantom and give that to your wallet and vice versa. So people will go back from like Ethereum to Phantom, Phantom to Ethereum, et cetera, depending on like what they're, what, what they want to do in the end. You know, there might be a particular application they want to use on Phantom that doesn't exist on Ethereum, or there might be like a particular application on Ethereum that doesn't exist on Phantom. And so people will kind of switch between these bridges. And, you know, they use different technologies, like any swap uses what's called like um, DCRM technologies, basically like a way of like, you know, managing keys and confirming transactions and other bridges work in, in other ways. So there's, um you know, there, there's, there's this like bridge ecosystem where, people use these custodian providers to swap assets between chains. And there's certainly a lot of advantages in doing that. There's certainly awesome disadvantages as well in terms of like, you know, you have a lot of assets being, you know, uh, concentrated in a few of these uh, custodial providers. So, you know, there's, there's, there's issues of security around that. And, you know, we've, we have seen some bridges in the past be exploited. Um, so you really got to be careful about the bridges that you pick. And also, you know, make sure that, you know, it's like, you know, audited and it's more known in the community and, you know, the people validating, you know, the, the transactions on the bridges are, you know, legitimate and you know who they are, et cetera. Um, you know, you got to do your due diligence about it. But that, that's essentially like how it works. Uh, you mentioned NFTs earlier and it, it's been interesting. Like I keep saying the, the, the story for me of 2021 in crypto was NFTs just because like, I mean, they were around, but like the the rise they had and the popularity and the gateway drug to so many people discovering crypto through NFTs was just, in my opinion, mind blowing. But what kind of activity are you seeing on Phantom? Like in terms of numbers of like artists that are choosing to deploy there uh, and, and users and activity, like, can you, can you give some of those stats for, for the benefit of our audience? Oh, the stats that I have right now it- to be honest, kind of a bit out of date because they, they changed so much, but yeah, we've had like a lot of artists, um, you know, <laughs> launch on like Phantom, they're doing like NFT collections. Um, you know, so, some of the art has been, you know, a lot of the art has been like generative art. So kind of like similar art to what kind of you see on, a, on, on Ethereum, um, for, you know, just to name like one, you know, we had like, uh, an artist, uh, deploy like bit humans and like ancestral humans. He's like, kind of like, um, like, drawings or generative arts of like all sorts of like different characters and you know they've been like very well received by the community and kind of what we've seen with nfts is you know not just like generating nfts and having nft sales right which is like nice but also like being able to use those nfts across like different games so you know there have been like these like for example like this there was this collection of nfts called like wafus right that were deployed on phantom um but now they can be used across like different games where, you know, if you have one of these, like, you know, one of these, like, waifu cards, you, you can deploy it as a character, you know, you got certain attributes and certain benefits for, for uh, um, you know, in-game. So you've seen, like, a lot of interoperability in NFTs because they all follow, like, specific token standards, right? So NFTs, you know, are not just, like, uh, like JPEGs, right? And not just an image, which in itself, 
you know, I, I know a lot of people make fun of it, right? But in itself is actually valuable, right? Because the NFT like kind of proves ownership over like the original image and it's basically a form of art at, at its like very base level, right? But on top of that, because it's, you know, it's digital and, you know, it's governed by smart contracts, you can add a lot of functionality on top of the NFT where, you know, it's not just like a drawing or picture, it's also something that, you know, can be used across all sorts of different games and now, you know, so-called metaverses, et cetera. So you can add a lot of digital utility to NFTs. And we've kind of seen that growth on Phantom. For example, with this like metaverse that's growing quite a lot, lot now on Phantom called the 8-bit metaverse. So <laughs> it's basically like an environment of like, um, uh, that's entirely created by, you know, 8-bits. So it's kind of like old fashioned looking and people, you know, buying like digital real estate there. And I'm sure they're going to integrate like other NFTs that exist on on Phantom. So, you know, we, we've seen a lot of growth there, you know, it's been like millions of dollars in sales and, you know, I don't know, like hundreds of thousands of NFTs being generated. So, you know, definitely still, you know, a fraction of what like Ethereum is doing, but we're, we're, we're growing pretty fast in that area as well. And a lot of it is, is, you know, it's not being driven by me. It's not being driven by, you know, the foundation has been driven by the community. The community has just gone out there and done it themselves which is what I find is, is amazing. And, and, you know, we, we talk to them and trying to figure out like what, what they're doing. With that said, are NFTs in a bubble <laughs> or do you think that they're undervalued? Like when we're really talking about this, like some of the, the price points that things are going for and that kind of thing, I, I know I'm kind of generating or sorry, speaking more generally about including Ethereum now and that kind of thing. But, but where's your opinion? Like if taking a step back, first off, did you anticipate the big year that NFTs had and like their popularity and, and two, like, what are your honest thoughts? Is it, are they all going to keep going up or are some people going to get burned? Well, you know, I, I didn't like, I, I didn't exactly like predict or expect like how fast NFTs were going, um, you know, um, but when, like when NFTs did started to grow, I started thought, well, you know, it's probably going to at least have the same level of traction that like DeFi has had in the past, right? Mm -hmm. And DeFi itself is still growing like like pretty strongly, even though that's not as you know not as talked about now as like NFTs and like now the metaverse, right? Even just in the past few months, um, you know, I don't know in a bubble or not. You know, it's it's always hard to say, right? Um, the important thing that I like to think about is not whether like, you know, something's in a bubble now or not. It's whether like something's like actually like real, like does it have like real utility and like real technology behind it? <laughs> because even if it's in a bubble now <laughs> over time, you know, it will, it will grow in, in, in size and in value, in my opinion. Um, that's kind of like how I view crypto as a whole in general, um, because, you know, crypto, obviously you've had like in the past, like, you know, big booms and big busts and then big booms again, but the kind of trend, you know, ever since crypto was invented is that it's kind of like a secular bull market. Like it just grows over time. And, you know, the reason why is because fundamentally it's sound, right? And yeah, there's still a lot of technical problems that need to be solved for, um, but, you know, they've been working on and there's still a lot, a lot of value there um, uh, with the existing technology. So, you know, we've seen like adoption grow over time, even during periods where the market hasn't been that great. And so that like adoption over time, just needs to like a growing market in the end, even if there are like a lot, of, there is a lot of volatility in between. But I think with any new technology, there's always like a lot of volatility in terms of like how people price things. I mean, you know, we've seen that in, you know, um, internet stocks, we've seen that in all sorts of different new technologies that are kind of unrelated to, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies or blockchains. And I think this is it's the same sort of thing. It's just like human psychology. So, yeah, I don't know if like someone in a bubble or not, maybe someone in a bubble, maybe someone not. But in my opinion, in my opinion, it's a big growth area like DeFi that's not going away. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm I'm really focused in um you know helping you know projects that want to you know do NFT metaverse stuff um to to launch on Phantom in particular. On that note, in regards to the metaverse and gaming and NFTs, you know, for a blockchain um, that can process transactions super fast and super cheap. Like I have to imagine when it comes to blockchain gaming, and I don't know specifically, but blockchain gaming, I feel like, oh, there's got to be lots of transactions happening. And when you're on a chain that potentially has very high fees or slow transaction speed, that must be uh, big, you know, th- that those are potentially really big hurdles to have your game run efficiently. Does Phantom, you know, is Phantom a good option when it comes to um, those who are might be considering where to, you know, have their blockchain game hosted? Yeah, well, well obviously I'm biased, but like, you know, <laughs> my, my answer to that is yes, right? Uh, so the kind of the way that blockchains, uh, blockchain-based games work is that not like every single animation or gameplay is on the blockchain. What is on the blockchain is like the data that's saved there, right? So anywhere that you want, you know, say results of something that happens in a game or an in-game, in-game item or something that has persistent data, i.e. you want it to continue existing, um, you know, in the game, not not just like in a single instance, that's something where you you wrap that into a transaction and you submit it onto the blockchain. So the data is like saved permanently. Um, so that's kind of like how blockchain like base games uh, work for a lot of people who you know are, aren't really aware about it. So you know, even though you're not saving every single animation and activity that happens in a chat in a game, you know, if you're saving a lot of data, you're creating a lot of in-game in-game items, for example, you know, leveling up your character or building you know a kingdom or something like that, there's, there will be a lot of transactions in the end in order to save that data. So you know, with Phantom, you know, as I talked about before, the fact that we have you know this asynchronous technology it means that we can confirm, you know, transactions faster and cheaper than say like alternatives. That being said, blockchains are not like scalable enough now to be able to hold, to be be able to have like hundreds of millions of users or or even billions of users. And the reason why is because of something called like the blockchain trilemma, which is basically like a trade-off between performance, availability, and security. So by performance, we mean like, you know, how fast can you um, confirm a transaction? Like how much transactions can a network confirm in a particular point in time by security we mean uh, you know how secure or like 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 how hard is it to kind of like manipulate data on the blockchain to do things for example like a double spend where you're spending your same money twice and then there's also like availability which is like you know how how um you know how likely is is a blockchain can uh, uh, gonna 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 continue to be live and not be like shut down or have uh, periods where it's not going to like really be used. Right. Um, and in my opinion, like the way that you ultimately kind of like solve the blockchain trilemma or deal with it as best as possible is via things like sharding, where you are able to basically do computations across like any N number of machines. And so you can basically do horizontally scale, uh, scaling basically to infinity. So if you have a sharding network, or blockchain that kind of works in the end, you know, you can keep scaling it up and up and up by simply just adding more computers to it. Whereas with, with blockchains, because you have like a lot of computers confirming the same transaction, it adds a lot of like uh, computational cost to it. But obviously the more computers you have confirming the transaction, the more secure it is. So that's kind of like what the trade-off is. Um, but with sharding, you know, you only have to confirm like part of a transaction and then you sort of, you kind of put it together onto the final chain. 
Um, so I think, you know, what we've done with Phantom is we kind of like optimize the trade-off where, you know, yes, it is like faster, more scalable than the existing technology out there, but it doesn't make it infinitely scalable. So, you know, Phantom right now wouldn't be able to have, you know, be able to do like 500 million transactions like per day, right? Or hundred million transactions per day. It's simply not possible, you know, for, for it to do that. You know, it could do like a few million transactions per day, but ultimately we want to get into hundreds of millions, if not billions of transactions per day. Um, so we are focusing on, you know, exploring like sharding and a few other like uh, technologies as well on, on how to scale in the end. You know, it's a very difficult problem to solve, but one that we're uh, definitely taking a look into. Is that arguably the main, um, you know, goal right now is to um, address that challenge and work on finding a solution there? Yes. Well, kind of the technology, there's like a few technology goals. So one is uh, being able to minimize um, like, like, the, like the size of data on chain. And that's why we've got like um, our own version of like Sapsync coming up. Uh, that's like kind of similar to Ethereum, but quite different in many ways because of the way that our consensus works. Um, so that kind of like minimizes how much data a validator needs to store on chain in order to process transactions. So data minimization is one of it. Um, part of it as well is also being able to execute smart contracts a lot more, a lot faster than you currently do because all like EVM based chains, um, was it the way that data structures work, um, uh, it, with, with the Ethereum virtual machine, when you, when you write and receive data to, into your smart contract, um, it gets it gets slower over time and it's like a really slow process. So what we want to do is kind of find alternative data structures for that reading and writing of smart contract data on chain, um, because that's also another area that can be made a lot more scalable than it currently is. Um, but then ultimately, you know, how we get to like scaling up to a much uh, bigger level than kind of what I ex explained is, you know, you got to look into things like sharding. Um, so that's also something that we're uh, taking a look at at as well, because that's how we make, you know, Phantom basically, you know, be used by like a lot more people than, than, than currently use it. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, it, it's interesting, you know, spending some time on crypto Twitter and, you know, we follow people who are supporters of all blockchains and coins and that kind of thing. And, and one of the themes is there's, there seems to be a lot of maximalism in the space in whether somebody is, you know, pro Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. And, and it's kind of like, that is the, the solution. There are people who are generally like, you know, different blockchains have different purposes and that kind of thing. But I'm curious from your perspective, being the CEO of another layer one solution, what is it like dealing? Cause the Ethereum crowd and supporters, like that's a, that's a strong voice on crypto Twitter. And some of them basically are saying like all other L ones, they're not decentralized. They're not the same. Um, they're sacrificing those things. Um, is, what is it like from your perspective dealing with that? Yeah. Well, kind of like my perspective is that, um, the, the future we're going to have. So a lot of people ask me, yeah, are we going to have like one chain or like many chains? And in my, in my opinion, we're going to have a few chains. It's going to be a multi-chain future simply because that's kind of like how it's playing out right now. And also like, it's very easy to switch between chains as I kind of explained like early in the podcast. So, you know, I think that's what's going to be in the future. And it's going to be a matter of like, you know, like which chains are going to, are going to be part of that, like few category in the end. Right. And so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a technology race. It's a race to get scalability. It's a race to improve performance. It's a race to improve security. So that's why, like, for Phantom, 
you know, we want to compete in that sort of area. And, you know, with, with Ethereum, like they do have some, uh, you know, uh, or, or the Ethereum, like Maxis, when they make the argument that oh, other chains are not as like decentralized in Ethereum, I think that argument is like kind of correct because there is like a trade-off in 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 the blockchain trilemma, as I, as I mentioned before. So Ethereum has like a lot more decentralization than other chains, which is one reason why their performance or, or scalability isn't as high as other chains. <laughs> that being said, you know, what Phantom is doing, because, you know, we, we don't have like, that much decentralization at the moment. I think we have like 51 or 52 validators. We're starting to experiment in, okay, what does the performance look like, you know, with like a few hundred validators, right? You know, 100, 200, 250, 300, or 1,000. Um, you know, it's a bit like a, of a philosophical question, like what is decentralization? Because it's like, okay, well, how much decentralization is enough, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no right answer in terms of like, oh, you know, it's when there's like, you know, 200 nodes or 300 nodes or 400 nodes. There's no like 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 quote unquote correct answer there it's all like depending on your your philosophical beliefs right and so you know for myself personally i think if we have a few hundred nodes running on phantom i think to, to me that's quite a lot of decentralization um you know other people might differ and say that still is like centralized compared to like other systems well you know that that can be their opinion but in my opinion if we have a few hundred validators in the end um, on Phantom, then that to me, I think we've achieved like quite a lot of decentralization. Yeah, well put, Michael. This has been super interesting. We're, we're almost at the last section of that we ask every guest. We ask every guest the same three questions. So we'll get to that in a sec. But one thing I want to touch on, uh, which I think is interesting, is so in terms of advertising and crypto uh, companies like, like Crypto.com. Take them as an example. They have been huge in, in advertising with UFC, uh, you know, the formal former Staples Center now being crypto.com arena. It, it's massive in, in terms of like the public awareness and that kind of thing. But Phantom as well has gotten into some sponsorship with Formula One. Do you mind just talking about that and why, why Formula One? Yeah, for sure. Um, sorry, just quickly going back to your previous question. I forgot to also mention one thing. You know, a lot of people don't talk about um, the centralization as well with proof of work, right? So because like running miners requires a lot of economies of scale, there's only like a few or, or like a small number of providers that are actually able to do it. So, you know, in, in, in that sense, there is centralization there in that there's not like, you know, many people running Bitcoin validators or Ethereum validators. There's only like a few organizations or few pools that are actually doing that. Um, so there is like a degree of centralization there. Um, but just like uh, to get to your question now about like the sponsorships, yeah, I mean, you know, we we, we have like a really um, uh, great community supporter um, that I think like everybody in Phantom now knows about called called Harry Ye. Um, he is a guy that really like organized and set up the Phantom Developer Conference that we had in October that had a tremendous amount of traction and attention to it. Where you know, I, I you know I haven't been to many conferences recently because of COVID. It was the first time I went to like a big conference where. I ended up meeting like a lot of developers in the Phantom ecosystem. So it was like a, a amazing to see. And so he's been like a big Phantom supporter and he's done a lot for the community in many ways. And one of them is, yeah, he like he sponsored like um, uh, Alpha Tori for the final season. There's probably going to be more announcements about that later on as well. You know, that certainly has gotten us like a lot of like mainstream attraction. Um, so, but, in, but in my, in my opinion, at like the foundation level, you know, I, you know, we are definitely like interested in like some sponsorships, but 
Um, it, it, we're not really that focused, honestly, in terms of like doing like many sponsorships, um, simply because like, you know, I, I, I know some of our competitors that done a lot of things like, you know, sponsoring like stadiums and, you know, doing all sorts of things like you kind of mentioned to me, I think, um, you know, the, the money is like better spent in us in terms of like the development and the marketing and the PR, um, because, you know, some of these sponsorships can be like very, very expensive. And if we want to compete against our competitors, like, you know, Fanta Foundation has like some money now, um, but like some of our competitors have a lot more money than us. And so, you know, we, we can't play kind of like a sponsored game where it's all like about the money in the end. So that's not really our focus, but, you know, definitely we've seen some people in the community like Harry, you know, kind of do his own sponsorship on behalf of Phantom. And I do like really, really like appreciate that myself personally, you know, that level of commitment is like definitely very serious and something that I haven't really seen before. And I think like a lot of people in the founder community also like deeply appreciate that, uh, appreciate that as well. And, and just uh, before we get to this final section, I did want to touch on it as well, because you, you briefly mentioned the grant program earlier, but um, I'm sure that's something you'd probably like to share and get out to the audience. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, a few months ago, I think it was about September, uh, uh, the Phantom Foundation announced like a 370 million FTM um, incentive program to kind of like help and grow um, and develop the Phantom ecosystem. So what it is about is like, you know, being able to get like a certain number of like a certain level of transaction, um, sorry, a certain number of like traction for your application, whether it's like DeFi or NFT related or something else. So there's like very like well-defined specific metrics. So it's kind of like black and white. And if you, um, you know, fulfill those certain thresholds, you qualify for a certain number of like uh, FTM that's invested monthly. And that FTM has to be used to kind of like help grow your products. So you might use it, you know, to try and like airdrop to get users. You might use it in terms of like, you know, like DeFi or, or staking. Um, you might use it, uh, you know, for whatever way you see fit that helps grow your project. Um, so for example, like with uh, DeFi protocols, it's about your TVL. So I think the minimum requirement is like, you have at least like 5 million TVL and then you can start qualifying for some more like phantom incentives. And if you get your TVL higher, which to us kind of like shows like traction, then you also get like a, like a high a number of incentives. So, you know, the incentive program isn't very like, um, you know, it's, it's not very like opaque. It's not like, you know, it's a foundation that decides, you know, picks winners and losers or anything like that. It's very transparent and it's all based on like very objective data points where, you know, it's not the foundation that's, you know, putting their subjective opinion and picking winners and losers. It's really just like, okay, have you fulfilled the thresholds? Can we confirm it? Okay. You have, you know, here's your incentives as, as, as per the program that we've announced. So, you know, the whole objective of it is just to get as many people developing on Phantom as possible. And so that's the, that's the kind of program that we have right now. Nice. Awesome. Well, Michael, it's been a super interesting conversation. As I mentioned earlier, we like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three question segment we ask every guest. It's a segment we call You Had Me at Crypto. Ulf's going to ask you those questions. All right. You ready? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So the first question, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Oh, definitely Andre. Yeah. No doubt about uh, that. Andre Cronier. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Second question. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't exactly know, but in my opinion, because um, there's tremendous growth in crypto in general, and particularly in Bitcoin as well, is, is in my opinion, it's going to be a lot higher. 
like you, you got it. You got to ballpark something. Like we we're not gonna. Oh, it, I don't obviously, know. nobody like, knows ten years from now. But yeah, you know, in my opinion, it would be have to be at least in the six figures. All right, all right, we'll take like, it. Like that, I, that's I, a low answer, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if it's multiple times the current price of Bitcoin, simply because of the amount of attraction and attention and the amount of people that will are going to be buying Bitcoin in the future and, and other currencies as well. Cool. All right. The third question, uh, what is the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? And no, we cannot say Phantom. Um, I, 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 don't really, I don't really know the answer to that question, to be honest. I don't, I don't want to just like pick one project and then I have a lot, a lot of angry people going after me. Um, <laughs> or I'd say... It could be a theme. It could be a theme. Like it could be like DeFi or NFT. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In terms of theme, in my opinion, something I haven't really seen much about, I've seen talked about in the past, but I haven't really seen talk much about now, which I think makes sense um, in terms of like how it works is like group-based insurance. So, you know, with insurance companies right now, um, you know, it's very much, there's, there's a lot of moral hazard there, right? In that, you know, you're interacting with a big insurance company. So your incentive is when you have to make an insurance claim to make it as, as big as possible because you want to try and get as much money back from the insurance company as possible. But there have been some ideas in the past um, talking about like group-based insurance and particularly on the blockchain, but I haven't seen any of them really take off where, you know, instead of having like, uh, like an intermediary, like a big insurance company between you and between you claiming and the person paying the premium, you basically like have a community you put together with like your friends and your family. And that kind of like makes sense a lot <laughs> because if you're putting money together and you all know who's putting the money, if somebody makes a claim, <clears throat> you know, they're going to be incentivized not to try and claim as much as possible or commit fraud, which is a lot of insurance fraud, but really claim the like minimum as possible. And then, you know, have to show proof to your friends and your family. And, you know, if people dispute your claim, you can have a system where, for example, there can be like a jury selection where, you know, people will analyze the claim and be like, oh, okay, you know, this claim is legitimate for this amount of money. Oh no, this claim is not legitimate. We're not going to do the payout. And so you kind of solve the more hazard in that case. So it makes insurance a lot more efficient, in my opinion, at least theoretically, because then your incentive is not to try and get as much money from the system. Your incentive is to minimize how much you're claiming because you don't want to get a bad reputation amongst your friends and your family, particularly when it's transparent and the claims are transparent on the blockchain. Um, that to me, you know, has like enormous efficiencies. And in the end, you know, that would like lower your premiums on average, right? Because people are not overclaiming. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big theme that I've not seen a lot of projects do. Uh, Is that to be different? Like, is that different from uh, that? Sounds a lot like what Nexus Mutual is doing. Is that or is is this different? Yeah. So I've seen come kind of the, the like insurance model, um, you know, to do with like um, like like DeFi or, or, or protecting against like um you know adverse consequences in the smart contract space. <laughs> but I haven't really seen it on the day to day basis. Right. Moving where outside people are doing of that. Like healthcare claims where people are doing like car claims, that sort of thing. Gotcha. And I think part of it could be because of the regulations. You know, there's a lot of regulations around insurance, particularly when it's due to healthcare. Um, that you know maybe would like you know stifle innovation. Um, but I haven't seen it uh, a lot of this sort of group-based insurance for like e everyday claims. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and that's something that that's a theme that I think is like highly underrated because yeah. to me theoretically, like having explored it actually like a few years ago with a few people, it seemed to me that it makes a lot of sense how it works. That it really does solve this moral hazard of people overclaiming.
because mm-hmm. they're not yeah. like all accountable to anyone and, and they don't care about the big insurance company because nobody cares about them like <laughs> <laughs> that that's an interesting point the one it was interesting we had hugh carp on the show of nexus mutual and the one thing that he mentioned is kind of like going into the yeah the day-to-day to some degree was um things like weather or like different or like yeah. uh, like weather insurance different things like that where it's yeah. like you know you don't have to be verifying that a car was hit or something like that it's like very standard like i can go to the weather report and see if this happened kind of thing yeah. so but well, really- it's, like it's like you know you can have you can have like jury selection right so you know you can have like on the smart contract like randomly select like I don't know, like 10 or 12 people in like a group insurance pool uh, to analyze a claim and they get rewarded for analyzing the claim. And, the, you know, analyzing the claim could be like, you know, looking at people's receipts, looking at the damage and the photos and discussing amongst themselves, okay, you know, do we think the claim is reasonable? Do we think the damage is legitimate? You know, you, you vote, okay, you vote that it is. And then somebody is able to make a claim out of, you know, some pooled funds in, you know, a smart contract. Um, that's something that I think is like very interesting um, that I haven't seen a lot of people explore on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you, you, you are right in terms of like insurance for like smart contract events, but we haven't really seen that in, in like kind of real world stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love it. Such a good point. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining Ulf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Thanks a lot, guys. Like I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.